I'm a runner. <laughs> That's how I would uh, define myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't uh, categorize myself as a particular type of runner, say a mountain runner or whatever. I've uh, done a little bit of everything over the years. I've been running since uh, 1978. So um, back in the fall of 1978, they had um, a pie run at my high school. And um, I had never run a race before, but back in those days, they had the uh, president's physical fitness test. Some of the oldsters will remember that. And um, the, the, you had to do chin-ups and push-ups. And one of the parts of the test was also a 600-yard run, I think. Maybe 300-yard run. It was a run, though. And I did terribly at everything except for the run. And I remembered that. And I'm like, this this sounds interesting. I'm going to go to this, this pie run. So um, I showed up and um, I ran in jeans and a big wool jacket because it was a really cold day. And uh, I obviously had never done a race before. And I ended up coming in fourth. And I was super, super disappointed because the top three got a pie. And um, the, uh, the coach from the high school, Baruch Memorial High School, where I was... Uh, where I was a freshman, uh, he came up to me and he said, so we'll see you next week at practice. And uh, I'm like, practice, what's what's practice? He's like, oh, you're going out for the track team. And, uh, and so it began. Greetings, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, Welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Human Performance Coaching Studios here in Stratford, New Hampshire, U.S. of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you, and also welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told to the stories of the important influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, teammates, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Dave Dunham, Double D, is my guest this week. If you just go by the numbers, and if you know Dave, you know he's a numbers guy, He's run over 157,000 lifetime miles in 18 countries and all 50 states. During his five decades as a runner, he's run, raced, and won on all surfaces, in all seasons, and across all distances, from the mile up to 100 kilometers. That incredible success has earned him multiple Hall of Fame recognitions, Runner of the Year awards, and enough gold medals to start his own bullion depository. But he's been much more than just an elite athlete during this time. His contributions to the sport include coaching, race directing, and advising. As New England mountain runners and race directors, we also have him to thank for the USA Track and Field Mountain Circuit, which he founded. Join us as we discuss the origins of New England mountain running, the challenges it faces, and the opportunities to grow the sport 
in underrepresented demographics. Here he is, Dave Dunham. Double D, welcome, welcome to the podcast, buddy. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm 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 doing really well. It's been uh, it's been a minute or two since you and I had the opportunity to, to cross paths. And 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 I will say too that when I when I say cross paths, I mean uh, when you come to pick up your bib at bib pickup. Because outside of that, uh, I don't ever see you on the course because clearly you are you know you're 20, 30 minutes ahead of me. And then usually by the time I finish a race, you're already gone. So it, when I say cross paths, I really mean when you come to pick your bib up at registration. That's about the only time I get an opportunity to see you. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. <laughs> I think that's a fascinating part of the story. But um, let, let's start with this, uh, Dave. Yesterday, um, I guided a client uh, to his first successful summit of Mount Washington. Nice. Uh, do you remember your first? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was the 1988 Mount Washington Road Race. That was the... That was the first time that you had been on the summit of Mount Washington. First time I'd ever seen the summit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> and what what do you remember about about that that eighty eight race? Uh, do you remember do you, do you remember being you remember it being harder than it was built up to be? Was it easier than it was built up to be? Because it and I ask you that because um, my uh, my client Ray, who I mean we we've been working on this project for a couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. So he's been thinking about summiting Mount Washington for a few years and he's been training for it. And, uh, he had a, he had a really interesting experience as, as we were on the summit and he was reflecting a little bit. Um, he said it felt a little anticlimactic, like mm. it, like he had built it up to be this monster in his mind. And it wasn't really quite that. Uh, I mean, do you remember anything about that 88 race? Well, I remember um, Bob Hodge, seven-time Mount Washington Road Race winner. He was coaching at um, at the University of Lowell, so I, I knew Hodge from there. And um, he had talked about uh, the Mount Washington Road Race, and it was kind of a um, a unique thing, uh, something you know outside of the realm of what I'd normally do. I was a you know a cross country runner, a track runner, a road runner, whatever, but uh, I had never considered mountain running. And um, he had played up how interesting it was and how unique it was. And uh, so I went there, um, you know, knowing a little bit about it, but um, being, I guess, pretty naive about it as well. And um, I do remember uh, the um, Jay... Um, Jay Johnson, the uh, who had won a uh, gold medal at the mountain running world championships was there and he was the favorite. So I keyed off of him in the in the early going and I felt it wasn't fast enough. So I took the lead and um, just kind of went on and on. And I remember thinking it's got to flatten out the next turn on the auto road. It's going to it's going to flatten out. We're going to go around that that turn it's it's got to flatten out it just can't continue like this the entire way and every turn was a disappointment that it obviously <laughs> didn't flatten out it, and many times it got even steeper and um so i ended up uh, i did end up winning the race and uh setting the 
the then course record and um, getting interviewed. And I do remember um, they, they asked me my thoughts on my impressions about the, the first time doing it. And I said that that I felt the only way they could make it harder is if they made you climb the cell tower at the, at the finish. <laughs> so I think well, it met my expectations for being a pretty uh, pretty tough ride race. Um, so, you know, you next couple of days or 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 the next week or so, and you, you're probably you're probably reflecting a little bit on the race. Um, how soon after that, 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 that 88 race in which you won as a first timer, did you start to think, you know, I could run that faster, or maybe this is my thing or, or at that time, do you feel like were, were you one and done? Um, I don't think I was thinking uh, about being one and done. Um, I was definitely getting into more, uh, more unique stuff. Um, I just started doing a little bit of, uh, trail racing, um, and um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I believe I was gonna come back, um, that I planned on coming back because, um, because it is so unusual. It's not like, um, like a 5k, you, you have a, a bad day at a 5k, you can always do another 5k the following weekend. Um, you, you have the whole year to build up the expectations about this one particular race that's so unique. Um, so I, I think I was, I was definitely in for it, um, by that point, um, after doing the first one and, uh, the second one, uh, 89, I had, um, uh, battled with, uh, with Bob Hodge, um, every step of the way we actually ran side by side, um, from the, from the start to, um, to nearly the finish. And, uh, I think it was numerica bank was the the primary sponsor then and we we actually got um we were both running for the greater Lowell Roadrunners, and we got special singlets that had um new numerica bank um on it and somewhere around seven miles um i actually wasn't feeling very good the entire race and considered dropping out but i'm like i can't drop out i'm you know i'm tied for the lead with with bob i i have to continue so at um Right around seven miles, I turned to Bob uh, Haji and uh, and I said, um, what do you think about tying? And uh, he said, Numerica paid for a race. <laughs> I'm like, OK, so uh, I ended up um, out kicking him on the on the wall the last whatever, 100 meters of the race. And uh, I believe it's still the the closest men's men's finish we were like a second and a half apart at the finish so um, um <laughs> definitely locked in after that it's like okay this i'm i'm actually i actually might be okay at this <laughs> yeah clearly um back to that 88 experience i'm 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 curious i mean you you wrote the book on on Mount Washington, <laughs> like like literally, you wrote the book. I, sometimes people like use that expression figuratively to mean <laughs> like he's pretty good at it, like he wrote the book. But you actually literally wrote the book of the history of the Mount Washington Road Race. And so let me let me put you on the spot for a moment, sure. uh, and it's perfectly fine if it's something that, that that you don't know offhand. But I'm curious about um, first time winners, right? Eighty eight, your first time doing the race, and you won the race. It, it, is that a unique thing at the Mount Washington Road Race, Dave? Or, or, or do you think 
do you think experience at that race really, really pays big dividends? I, I know I did a deep dive at one point um, and looked into the stats. You know, I um, I not only wrote the book about the history, but I maintain uh, all the records. I have a database of every finisher. And I, I did take a look into, I think it was who PR'd at their first um, first race. And it was a surprisingly high number of people, if you exclude people who only do it once, obviously, yeah. Um, that a high number of people come in and run their fastest time the first time. Um, so that part was unique. I don't know that I've ever looked at, um, you know, winning the first time, how rare that is. Um, but it, um, it definitely, um, just off the top of my head, I think it's pretty rare to win the first time you've run it. You know, if um, you're not a one and done. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, I wonder... Uh, does Joe Gray fit that fit that uh, that criteria? Did he did he win on on his first uh, first attempt? I don't know. I, I don't think so. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure he didn't, and uh, and he's done quite a few of the races now. Yeah, for for sure he has. Um, Dave, do you, do you think do you think all of the records up until a year or so ago deserve an asterisk because the entire auto road is now paved? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, um, looking back at some of the videos, um, Bob Teshek, uh, Bill Teshek, Bob's brother, uh, Bob Teshek was the race director. Bill was, um, is his brother. Um, Bill would, um, video all of the races from the press truck. And it's, it's amazing looking like in the early eighties, I've, I've got, uh, I had the whole set. Um, so like from 85 on, he was videoing and um, how much of the auto road was unpaved back then. So, but I don't know that, that that's such a huge advantage because, um, you know, it's, it's solidly packed. Maybe a few of the years where it's been um, wet and a bit muddy, you know, you could definitely see, okay, that's going to slow people down. But generally, it's such a firm packed road that, that I don't know that that really makes much of a difference. Mm. Do you, and do you think it makes less of a difference because it's an uphill race rather than say a flat, uh, a, a, a flat race? I mean, do, does this, in other words, does the surface matter more for a mm. flat fast race than it does an, an uphill race in which, and I'm not saying that winning times aren't fast, but relatively speaking, you know, right. Yeah. yeah I, I would think so because uh, generally you don't need to be fast. You just need to be able to, uh, you know, again, like you say, fast is a, a relative term. You don't have to be fast. You have to really be able to grind and keep going and going. So, yeah, I'm not so sure that that is such a big factor. And, um, you know, maybe any more than uh, the new super shoes. I don't know that they're a big factor on something where you're, you know, you have an 11% grade the entire way, whether the shoes um, really help or if they're just a psychological help. Yeah. Certainly um, not having cars coming down during the race uh, is a benefit now. That uh, so it wasn't always the way. Oh, uh, interesting. So when approximately when, when did that change? When, when did they start prohibiting? That was probably um, late eighties, early nineties that um, so in the morning they used to let traffic like people who paid to, to do the auto. It wasn't closed for the whole day. So people would be going up early and they didn't have anything in place to hold them at the summit. So you could come around a blind turn and there could be traffic coming down from the from the summit. And I've actually 
uh, seen on the video, like a couple times, um, Bob Hodge again, almost getting taken out by a, by a car. Um, so uh, that it's fascinating. So times have um, changed <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. They have, um, well, the Mount Washington road race is oftentimes mentioned in the same breath as the Pikes Peak, uh, ascent. Uh, and even, even more recently the Loon Mountain race as, uh, as three of, of the, as three of the largest uphill mountain races in, in the United States, largest in terms of, in terms of a participant field. Um, I know you've done Mount Washington. I know you've done Loon. I, I don't know that you've done Pikes Peak Ascent. Never done it. Um, Interesting. You know, thought about it, but just the, um, the whole altitude thing, being a sea level guy, um, no, I've, I've had a few experiences at altitude and they weren't great experiences, so I just never got around to doing that. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I, and I also know, um, um, that, uh, you were, you were there and involved, uh, with the origin and the creation of the Loon Mountain Race, uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, you and, and Paul Kirsch and Rich Bolt, um, uh, Paul Bazanchuk probably was hanging around at, at, at that time with you guys, but but I but I know that you were integral in uh, in in the design and development of the original Loon Mountain Race Course, which is which has changed a little bit over the years. Mm -hmm. um, Dave, compare and contrast, if you will, the for for the you know for the listener who maybe hasn't done both the Mount Washington Road Race and the Loon Mountain Race. Um, compare and contrast those those two different races. Well, Mount Washington, as you mentioned, is a is a road race and and almost all paved, and it is essentially a steady uphill the entire way. Whereas Loon Mountain, um, and what we were looking for when we first came up with the idea for Loon was to have European style mountain running in New England, and uh, by European style, it would be. Um, uh, cat track mix of cat track grass um, uh, trail cross country ski trail just a, anything you could think of any of those kind of surfaces and it wouldn't be um, all up you'd have um, some really steep ups you've had some moderate ups you'd have some um, bone jarring descents um, just a little bit of everything and I think even now the the race really captures um, what you'd get if you went to Europe to go mountain racing. Um, yeah. And, 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 and now the, the loon mountain race with its finish on the top of North peak, um, is, is a little bit closer. And the addition of the cross country, uh, section of the course is now a little bit closer, uh, in terms of the distance of Mount Washington, uh, closer. It's not, it's not obviously the same. Right. Um, of those, of those two, two races. And again, you, I think you described it really well that, I mean, they're, they're net uphill mountain races. Mm -hmm. Surfaces are different. Of course, uh, distances are, are approximately the same. Obviously there's, uh, you got some, you got some downhill sprinkled in and, um, you've, you've got, you've got a section of the loon mountain race, um, that, uh, is, is dizzyingly steep upper walking <laughs> boss, which you don't have on the auto road with, with maybe the exception of the wall, but that's only a hundred sure. meters or so. Sure. Um, Dave, in your estimation, which, which is harder, the Mount Washington road race or, or the loon mountain race? 
you know, it depends on the on the athlete. For me, uh, Loon Mountain is much, much more difficult. Um, people say, oh, you're a, you're a, um, a good climber and um, or a good hill runner. And I don't think I'm a really good hill runner. I think hills, you know, we're talking changing gears, which I am terrible at changing gears. But I can get into that low gear and just keep going. So, so something like Mount Washington, where you get into this steady pace the entire way, um, I was really good at that. Whereas uh, Loon Mountain, uh, you're constantly shifting gears. You're going, you're sprinting all out. You're, um, you know, the surface can be great. You want to go faster. Um, whereas other parts, you're picking your way through, you know, technical terrain. And um, that part, that shifting, that having to go fast and slow down, um, I'm just not not that good at that. Mm-hmm. And and I started Loon at a at a later time in my career, so I wasn't I wasn't the fast guy. But relatively speaking, even you know, as I grew older, I was still much better at Mount Washington than I'd be at a Loon style race. Got it. Um, and and for the listener who has done uh, the Loon Mountain race um, and has experienced Upper Walking Boss uh, <laughs> and who likely has cursed under their breath the individual who came up with the idea of Upper Walking Boss. Um, <laughs> I've heard a, I've heard a number of different stories about uh, kind of what happened there, uh, that that scouting trip uh, mm-hmm. and uh, who who looked at upper walking boss and thought, you know what, that's a good idea. Let's race up that. What, what do you, what do you remember about, about that day? That's a good question. Um, I, I know it was, um, uh, Richard Bolt, uh, uh, Paul Kirsch and, and I were in, um, being driven around. We had, we had come up with some ideas of where we wanted to go and they were driving us around, you know, on a full wheel, uh, showing us different parts of the mountain we could go and they had, you know, suggestions where um, where you'd want to go. And um, I'm not sure which one of us pointed out um, the the whatever is it West Peak. I'm not sure what the peak is yeah. that Walking Boss is on. Yeah, North. Yeah, pointed North over peak. to that and said, "Well, you know, what's over there?" And um, the guy who was uh, taking us around. He's like, oh, you don't, you don't want to go over there. That's that's this really steep upper walking boss. And we're like, well, yeah, that's exactly where we want to go. And um, yeah, we saw that. And and for sure, we're like, this has to be part of the race. It has to be, without a doubt. Well, of course, what I think what what makes upper walking boss ultimately the the most significant challenge in New England mountain racing and maybe arguably in U.S. mountain racing is that it is preceded by a downhill i forget the name of the uh of the trail that that you got to take mm-hmm. it's got water bars in it right mm-hmm. so you got to navigate the water bars as you're descending wow. it's probably a couple hundred meters uh not super steep descent but it it feels really good after climbing up to the gondola right and then you begin to descend mm-hmm. a little bit you get to the bottom of that trail and then it's a 90 degree right hand <laughs> turn it's literally it is a wall and um, the brakes and, go on yeah and the brakes go on and 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 i remember the first time i did it was just before uh, Paul asked me to to join him as a, as as a co-race director for the race the first time that i did uh, the Loon Mountain race. I got to that point and uh, took that right-hand turn and looked up. And all I remember is seeing people near the, wasn't even at the top of Upper Walking Boss, but they looked like ants. They were so, oh. they were so small. 
And yeah. uh, I, <laughs> it, it, I, that was probably the longest 30 minutes uh, of, mm. of, of my entire racing experience. I don't know that it was 30 minutes, but it, 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 it likely was 30 minutes. It, it felt like <laughs> 30 hours, um, just diabolical. Um, and, uh, and also really perfect. Um, uh, and, and, uh, uh, what, 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 a what a memorable part of the race and, and what a memorable, uh, race, uh, overall Dave, for the, for the listener who doesn't know Dave Dunham, why don't you introduce yourself? So, uh, Dave Dunham, uh, I'm a runner. <laughs> That's how I would uh, define myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't, uh, categorize myself as a particular, type of runner, say a mountain runner or whatever. I've uh, done a little bit of everything over the years. I've been running since uh, 1978. So um, back in the fall of 1978, they had a pie run at my high school. And um, I had never run a race before, but back in those days, they had the uh, president's physical fitness test. Some of the oldsters will remember that. And um, the, the you had to do chin-ups and push-ups. And one of the parts of the test was also a 600-yard run, I think. Maybe 300-yard run. It was a run, though. And I did terribly at everything except for the run. <laughs> and I remembered that. And I'm like, this, this sounds interesting. I'm going to go to this, this pie run. So um, I showed up and um, I ran in jeans and a big wool jacket because it was a really cold day. And uh, I obviously had never done a race before. And I ended up coming in fourth. And I was super, super disappointed because the top three got a pie. And um, the, uh, the coach from the high school, Baruch Memorial High School, where I was... Uh, where I was a freshman, uh, he came up to me and he said, so we'll see you next week at practice. And uh, I'm like, practice, what's what's practice? He's like, oh, you're going out for the track team. And uh, and so it began. So um, that, that coach was uh, Mike Grantfield, um, a great influence in my life. Um, on the first day of practice, he handed out uh, photocopies of a uh, runner's world training log. And he said, it's really important that you track your mileage. This is how you um, understand uh, how the training works and how to avoid mistakes. Uh, so from day one, I have tracked uh, every single mile I've done. And I, I thank him for that. Um, so along the way, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've tracked all those as well. But now I'm really, uh, I'm a numbers guy. Uh, I uh, got a degree. I uh, went to um, the University of Lowell uh, on a scholarship for running. Again, thank you to Mike Grantfield. And uh, there I was coached by uh, George Davis and um, a great coach, a very uh, um, hands-on when you needed them hands-on, but hands-off. Um, let you do your thing, let you do your training, but also let you know he was he was there um, if you needed him. So um, definitely my kind of coach. Uh, so uh, went to school there, um, did a lot of obviously track, um, indoor, outdoor track, uh, really liked cross country. When I uh, got out of school in 87, 
I started doing road racing. I had done a little bit of road racing anyway, you know, during the summers, but um, got into uh, road running with the uh, Greater Little Road Runners and um, then started branching off into other directions. Uh, started doing some trail running uh, early on, uh, mountain running. Uh, got involved in um, uh, the U.S. mountain running team, uh, the development of that, uh, the development of the uh, New England mountain running series, uh, a whole bunch of uh, branched off in all different kinds of directions. Um, won a pair of uh, snowshoes at the um, Cranmore Hill Climb. So I had set the course record at the Cranmore Hill Climb. And one of the prizes was a pair of racing snowshoes. Who knew that you race on snowshoes? This is this is back way, way back in the day. Um, and uh, I thought it was a, a pretty cool idea. And um, that actually got me to go to the very first um, snowshoe national championships where I, I won the national championships. And obviously that, uh, that got me even more interested in snowshoe racing. Uh, I developed a, a series here and race in, uh, in New England. Um, you know, so I've been involved in, in snowshoe racing, mountain racing. Uh, I was involved with uh, USA track and field. I was, um, Helped them with uh, with the uh, road series they had. Developed the mountain series here, um, and uh, and still continue to be involved. Uh, doing a lot of scoring for different uh, different things. I'm a, I'm definitely into numbers, so um, you know I help out with scoring the mountain series. Uh, they have an all terrain series now, which is pretty cool. That involves a race on the track, a race on the roads, cross country, mountain running, and trail running. Um, so I, I, I'm still involved in in that way, although I may not uh, be as competitive. I'm still uh, still getting out there. Mm. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, mountain racing and snowshoe racing because that's a that's a good segue into um, just briefly talking about how how you and I came to know each other. And I I think. You know, as it typically is with me, um, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just an ordinary Joe. Uh, I, I, I tend to, I tend to know about people before they know about me. And I'm almost, almost certainly that was the case here that I had, uh, I had seen and heard your name. This is probably early 2000s is when I would guess it to be right um, because it was about that time that i started getting into mountain racing and snowshoe racing and so as i as i started getting connected to that community of course you were heavily involved in the 2000 in the 2000s time period in mountain racing and and snowshoe racing both as mm -hmm. a both as an athlete and as a race director yourself i remember right. uh, uh doing your northfield mountain race both the mountain race mountain and race. the snowshoe race snowshoe race um, yeah yeah two uh two phenomenal two phenomenal races um uh, what do what do you remember about how how you and i came to know each other uh, i believe we met the first time we met um or formally met was at a race you put on at um oh shoot where was, was it? it was it gunstock Gunstock. It, it was the Cobble, Gunstock. the Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Cobble Race. Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Race. Our first 
our first event as an event management company, Acidotic Racing had been around as an adventure racing team for a number of years, but we finally threw our hat into the event management space. And our first event, first race we ever hosted was the Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Classic at Gunstock. We, we used the Gunstock Nordic Association's Nordic Trails in addition to Cobble Mountain, this little mm -hmm. peak in the mid this little peak in the middle of the of the of the uh, of the nordic section they right. they didn't ski over it but there was right. a there was a snowshoe trail that went up mm -hmm. over this little peak and it wasn't it wasn't i mean it it's a it's an otherwise uh easily missed peak except <laughs> in the middle of a snowshoe race right in which in which you gotta you gotta navigate up a snowshoe rail that I probably beat out the day before mm -hmm. and, then, and then a descent, which I probably also beat out the day before. Um, <laughs> now, right. did we do it twice or was it a, a single loop over the top? It very well could have been twice. I mean, if, if yeah, I mean, if I, if I think back to my, my early days of, of course design, I was all about beating the hell out of people. So yeah, I probably had people do it twice <laughs> just because if once is good, twice is probably better. And that was a tough one uh, because it also had a mix of surface. So like you said, you pounded out um, a single track to go up and over the hill, but uh, a, a fair portion of the race was also groomed uh, cross-country ski trails. So fast people could really go fast on that. And then you had to shift gears and, and grind out that climb. I'm pretty sure it was twice, but maybe not. Yeah. Um, um, well, that's that that's good memory. Almost, yeah, almost certainly that's when you and I had an opportunity to meet formally. And of course, my my inspiration for that snowshoe race and that snowshoe course was Paul Kirsch uh, and his side hiller snowshoe race, which is what got me uh, right. involved in snowshoe racing probably a year or two. Uh, before that, in fact, I was having a conversation with Bob Dion on the on the show just a, a week or so ago, and and Bob and I were talking about that. I want to say it was maybe 2006. Uh, it, I think was the first time that, or 2007, that I did Side Hiller, and uh, <laughs> I think there were 10, 12 finishers. Uh, okay. I I came in third uh, behind nice. you and Kevin Tilton. I think it was, yep. you, it, it was either, it was either KT and then you, and then me, or it was you. KT, that sounds, no, it was, you. it was Kevin and then me and then you. Yeah. yeah. And then Bob yeah. Dion was fourth that, that, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. first year. Yeah, uh, and of course, that. of course I was hooked. I went back uh, the next year, by the way, I beat Bob Dion again uh, <laughs> by one place. And, and as you know, Bob, Bob Dion has a very impressive running resume. Like he does. Right. Uh, I mean, he is he is he is he is one of the best. Um, of course, I, I was hitting him a little bit later in life. <laughs> so I, I kind of yeah. had a little bit of a I had a little bit of an age advantage on him. Be that as it may. Um, that was my first introduction to snowshoe racing. And again, likely it was Side Hiller that I was like, who the hell mm -hmm. is this Dave Dunham guy? Because <laughs> there isn't anything to him. And yet like he's lightning fast and he's particularly lightning fast on snow. Um now, do you remember at at Cobble Mountain? Um, I believe I shocked you after the race. You, um, I believe, the first place prize was a case of beer, That's right. and That's right. you couldn't believe that I wouldn't. I didn't want the case of beer, and I asked you to give it to the last place finisher. That's right. I forgot that. Well. It's like, why wouldn't someone want a case of beer? 
of course, I, I can I can fully appreciate that now, um, as I <laughs> as I have significantly curtailed my my beer <laughs> consumption. Uh, you you don't drink beer, and uh, so beer. it was yeah it, 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 right. So it wasn't a prize that was particularly valuable to you, um, but uh, and and uh, uh, the surprise and amazement on the face of that last place finisher wow. uh, when I handed them, and I can't remember if it was a him or her. Uh, that case of beer, right? Because <laughs> look, Dave, you you know you're a race director. You've been doing this a long time. The last place finisher never expects to win anything. In fact, right. they're happy if there are a couple of scraps left over on the food table <laughs> after, and maybe someone saved them some water. Exactly. Right? So to work to walk away with a prize, uh, yeah, very 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 thoughtful. Um, <laughs> and uh, what a what a really cool idea. Um, yeah, let, let me let me pick up on um, on that uh, that Northfield um, mountain race. Uh, so I want to I want to ask you about 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 this. So, you know, as as I was looking over your your race directing and, and race promoting resume, of course, I saw and I remember the Northfield race, which is now defunct. Um, I I. I I don't think that I knew about uh, a mountain race at Windblown Ski Area mm -hmm. and uh, uh, or Stratton Mountain Ski Area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Northfield, Windblown, Stratton. I'm sure there are probably a half dozen other defunct um, mountain races. Um, uh, Dave, what uh, what's your favorite? Uh, or what was your favorite now defunct? race venue or race course on the, on the mountain side of things? Uh, on the mountain side, um, probably uh, Kearsage. I really liked that race. Um, it was a eight and a half mile race from um, downtown Warner to the, um, not the summit, but the parking lot below the summit of, um, of Kearsage. So it's all on a road and it had, a five mile that was a, a very tough first five miles. Then you entered the park gate and it was three and a half miles of mountain race. So uh, a very, uh, very challenging, very unique race. And um, one of the ones I had the course record for. So I was sad to see it, to see it go, you know. Um, that, that sounds a lot like Pac-Manadnock. <clears throat> Uh, sim similar in some ways, um, probably a tougher lead up than, um, than pack and probably not quite as tough, of uh, the actual auto road as pack. So if you combine the two in all, I would say it was a tougher race than, than pack back in those days, back in the, um, the mid nineties, when I came up with the idea for the, uh, mountain running circuit, there were uh, three big races. So it was um, Wachusett Mountain, it was um, Kearsage, and Pac-Manadnock. And typically, you'd see the same people do all three of those as they um, led up to the Mount Washington Road Race. So people would do this as like their buildup to get ready for Mount Washington. And um, I had been racing over in Europe quite a bit uh, leading up to the mountain race, uh, the Mountain World championships. So I thought it'd be a great idea to have something like that in the U.S. where we had an actual series, you know, some something where um, you were encouraged to do these three races, not only to get ready uh, for Mount Washington, but there'd be um, 
there'd be some benefit to it beyond that. So uh, I approached those three races and um, that's how the, the mountain series um, got its start back in, uh, back in 96. So I and, guess maybe um, that's part of the reason Kirsash is, is one of my favorites. Yeah. And um, was, was USATF, were, were they involved right from the beginning of that mountain circuit? <laughs> At the time, I was on the um, the board at USATF New England. I've been on the board for um, uh, basically right after I got out of college in 87 um, until about 2000. I was on the board um, in different um, different ways as an athlete, um, as an elite uh, athlete um, and on the athletes advisory and uh, for LDR, uh, long distance running committee. And then um, I helped form uh, the U.S. USATF um, mountain running, uh, MUT, Mountain Ultra Trail is what it is now. Um, so I was uh, involved with um, uh, Lyndon Ellefson was, uh, was the guy who had actually set it up. And um, I actually still have a card that he gave me when we, um, we got together and, and kind of hashed out the idea of what the... Um, what mutt would be about. And I'm like, well, we have to have this at my regional USATF as well. So that's where um, the mountain series evolved from. And I'm glad um, to see it's still around. Yeah. So this was, uh, this was late eighties, Dave. Uh, this was 1996, nine 96. Sorry. Um, so, so the first three races in this mountain circuit were uh, uphill only right and they Apple were only. asphalt they were paved they were yeah they yeah. were either roads and or auto roads dave uh do you have any recollection of what the first non-pavement uh mountain race was i, I don't know the answer to that i'm, I'm curious if, if yeah you, i know i know it's a, if it's evolved over time and obviously i i have the spreadsheet somewhere yeah. that that lists um lists what it would be um, I know Cranmore has been around forever. Um, so there's a pretty good possibility. It was, it, it might've been Cranmore that was the first non, uh, non-payment. Now, now early on Cranmore was just uphill only. Yeah, correct. It was just, um, up the, uh, the access road to the summit. Got it. Right now. Um, <laughs> what, what do you recall, if anything, was the reaction of the, of the core group of participants who had been doing that uphill, auto road sort of series when all of a sudden <laughs> they were, they were on uh, cat track or service track or gravel road were, were people completely bent out of shape or what do you recall what the, what the sentiment was? Got a train going by right now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to city life. Yes. That's probably the down Easter. <clears throat> um, I think it, it actually, it evolved over time. So, you know, as, as you know, now it's, it's quite a bit of off-road and up and down. Um, but I think, I think it was such a slow process that um, you kind of brought in the people who enjoyed that type of thing. And it was still generally in the spring leading up to Mount Washington. It, it went from three races to four races. Um, you know, then a race might drop in or drop out. So, um, you know, it may have been Cranmore, but it may have actually been my race, um, uh, Northfield. And Northfield was a good introduction to uh, off-road mountain racing because it was mostly on, you know, carriage road type stuff. So grassy surface, 
um, you know, very uh, non-technical and what we in New England would call uh, Colorado technical. <laughs> yeah, West Coast technical, uh, right. right. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it could, could, could be that, um, that as well. I, I know at some point, um, you know, a few of the oldsters, the old school people uh, felt that it was too much headed in that direction. And um, I believe Fred Ross came up with, with his own series that um, is an uphill only, uh, and it may be all paved for it as well, mm. a series that he does as well. Yeah. Do you think the, um, do you think the diversification of surface and the, uh, the diversi diversification of course, meaning from just uphill only to up down, do you think, do you think overall the diversification of the, of the series um, led to increased growth and participation, or do you think that would have happened anyway? Uh, just a, sort of a natural evolution. Yeah, you know, it's really hard to say. Um, I I think it was uh, shocking how uh, how much growth uh, Loon Mountain experienced. That um, some of the races have been pretty steady. You know, they uh, Pacman Adnock, <clears throat> excuse me, gets two hundred people a year. For the last 30 years and it it never gets more than 250 it never gets less than you know 190 uh whereas uh you know loon mountain went from a couple hundred people to uh over a thousand well over a thousand which just is amazing yeah i'm not sure what uh what has driven uh what but we're we're pretty steady steady the amount of people who get goat status which is you know does um uh, it's usually like five out of seven or six out of eight of the mountain space races. Uh, so these would be the people who are hardcore. Um, so I, I don't know that the numbers have, have gone, you know, that much higher. And um, obviously there are more races. So, so maybe there has been some, some growth in that way. Um, it's definitely a, uh, opens it up to people who are more attracted to a certain race. And when you make it uh, a best of series, you know, people can say, well, you know, I'm not going to do, you know, X race because that's got way too much downhill or it's way too technical. So, um, you know, that opens it up for more people to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and, and speaking of, of, of increasing the participant pool, you know, I know this has been a conversation that you and I and, and, and Paul Kirsch have had, um, uh, specifically about, um, about the demographics of, uh, of New England mountain race, uh, racing <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, what, you know, what, what some of the, what some of the challenges and opportunities are, right. As we look at the, sure. as we look at, at, at the demographics specifically what I'm talking about, and I can, uh, I mean, I could, I could pull up my stats currently for, um, either the Waterville Valley mountain race or the Cranmore mountain race, our two mountain races that are on tap this fall, uh, we're probably only at, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a third of, of what we'll wind up with in, in terms of total participants, but the demographics I think are, aren't going to change. And essentially what those demographics look like are, you know, 70% men and probably 50% uh, of those, of those, of our overall participants are 45 years and older, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's it's exactly. older it's older men uh and again right. you 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 know you you could you could you could dive deep into these into these stats but just generally speaking dave 
uh, if, if that premise is true, that, that the typical participant in a USATF New England mountain circuit race is a male who's 45 years and older, um, at some point, uh, and maybe I'm wrong with this premise, but at some point, don't we need, don't we need to, to do a better job of including women and younger people in order for the sport to continue to be relevant and, um, and, um, and for the sport to, to persist? Yeah, never mind, never mind grow, but to just maintain, um, we need to attract a younger audience and, and more women to the, to the sport. So, um, you know, obviously, like I've said, I'm, I'm into the spreadsheets and I track, uh, track everything for the mountain series and, um, and Mount Washington as well. And a few other races and every year, the average age of the participant gets a year older. So we're bringing in, you know, the same people and, um, every year we're setting a record for the average age being the oldest age we've seen. And that can only, that can only last so long. And uh, um, there have been some efforts uh, a few years ago at Loon, there was a, a, a great effort that um, uh, brought in uh, a, a ton of women. Um, they did some, some special advertising and linked up with um with a group, uh, maybe refresh yeah, trail, my memory. Yeah, on trail the group that, that, yeah, that was Paul and I's initiative. Exactly. We had, we had 500 women start, start the race that year. In fact, it was approximately the same number of starters as our male, as our men's field. Um, it was amazing. And, and yeah, yeah, it was a good, but that was a very purposeful, uh, that was a very purposeful marketing approach. And, uh, interestingly enough, it, it didn't really stick. Um, well, well, I shouldn't necessarily say that it it it, it didn't stick. It it might have had an, had an impact at Loon, but it didn't have a trickle over effect into into the right. into our other uh, two mountain races. And I don't think it had a trickle over effect into the other mountain races in the series, which was our intent. Our intent wasn't just to can we get five hundred women at Loon. It was right. can we get more women in general to participate in New England mountain running. And I'm not sure that that really worked. So, yeah, I'm, th I'm thinking the, the problem is uh, the people you're attracting are, say, the people who would also be attracted to something like uh, a Tough mutter or something like that, where they want to do something that is incredibly unique, but maybe just do it once. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, I want to tell people I did the Upper Walking Boss. I have this sticker now I'm putting on my car um, that I did this unique thing. So I'm not really interested in mountain running per se i'm interested in in the, the experience of doing this yeah. yeah um so what look dave you 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 have as much experience and wisdom in in <laughs> new england mountain running as as anybody i could possibly imagine um uh you know i i'll anoint you grand poobah of mountain <laughs> running for a day uh, as grand poobah uh what 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 are you doing what what, what are the things are there any initiatives that we can uh, that we can implement as as New England mountain race directors or even trail race directors? Because I think, Dave, that trail running is also a feeder into mountain running. Right. Um, because I think generally speaking, I think generally speaking, the transition of the evolution is road running into trail running into mountain running. Like it's rare that people, first of all, go directly into mountain running because that's pretty sure. scary and overwhelming. Even trail running can be can be intimidating. Um, 
what 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 can we do as as mountain race directors or trail race directors here in New England? What can we do that we're not doing to attract a younger audience and one uh, and 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 one that also helps helps break down the barriers for female participation? Yeah, I'm not sure what needs to be done. Um, you know, trying to make it attractive to people uh, who may not have considered that as an as an option. I think you're right about um, you know maybe playing up the trail aspect of it as um, you know in some parts of the country uh, trail running and mountain running are used interchangeably. You know when they say you know it's a it's a trail race they actually mean a mountain race and maybe maybe uh, clarifying that it's not an ultra race because there are places where where people think oh uh, you know trail running mountain running that's that's long distance running uh, you know beyond the marathon where it's not necessarily that um, it's kind of funny. It's like, do you play up the, the unique difficult aspect of it that actually may be the thing that turns people away that yeah, it's too difficult. I can't do something like that. Or, you know, do you want to play up that, you know, this is something um, anyone can do if you're, um, if you're focused and you and you want to do it, it can be attained. Um, that's that's just really tough, you know, trying to figure out what will get people involved. Now, we've with the mountain series and, and I've said we, we get about 100 goats and those goats get a lottery bypass into Mount Washington. So that's the carrot that's getting them to do you know, six or eight of the, of the mountain series races. But again, that's, uh, you know, a small audience, the hundred people who are interested in uh, trying to get that bypass. So um, yeah, I don't know what we can find out there that would entice people to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you what, one of the things that we do at acidotic racing quite purposefully um, and intentionally is that in, in the imagery uh, in the social media imagery that we present um, of our races, I make sure and I'm very aware of when I'm presenting the imagery that I'm including women um, in these event photos that I'm sharing. Mm -hmm. um, because I think I think sometimes people need to see other people that look like them sure. doing that thing that maybe they think is unattainable um, uh, in order to in order to lower the bar for participation. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if all you see is imagery of elite men uh, <laughs> doing really hard things, yep. then if, if you don't fit that criteria, it's hard for you to picture yourself in that in that position. Uh, I don't I personally don't think that that's a small thing. That's why mm -hmm. that's why I'm very aware of that when I present when I'm presenting our race. And of course, we're we are so fortunate that, that we have the talents of, of Joe Vijay and, and Scott Mason mm -hmm. uh, to provide, you know, amazing pictures. Yeah, I yeah. mean, right. So, um, so you know, if we're going to be capturing that imagery, let's present our race in a way that 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 maybe that maybe is 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 quite skewed. In other words, the presentation of our race would suggest that the participation distribution is fifty fifty men and women. Mm -hmm. It's not, mm -hmm. um, but that's how I present it. Um, I, I mean, I think I think that's a start uh, anyway. Sure. And I, I also think too that that one of the reasons that the Trail Sisters Initiative at Loon caught fire um, uh, a few years ago that Paul and I implemented was um, that that um, that I think I think 
women do a much better job of uh, than than we do as men of um, uh, of participating in these experiences as groups. So mm -hmm. women are much more likely to reach out to a friend and say, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this Northfield Mountain Race. Uh, would you join me? Uh, I've got you know two or three other friends that are doing it." Um, and I think that was a big reason why um, that Trail Sisters initiative uh, sort of blew up on us like it did was that uh, women came in groups. Um, and, and, and I think as race directors, we can harness the power of that, um, sure. whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, bring a friend initiative, you mm -hmm. know, because I think, look, not that the cost is a barrier, Dave. Mountain races are pretty affordable, you know, 30, 40 dollars for a race. A, a, a race entry fee compare and contrast that to a, you know, a typical half marathon road race now in the, in the, in the region, it can be anywhere from 80 to a hundred dollars to do a, yeah. a road half marathon right, right. For, a race that, for a race that might take about the same amount of time. You can spend a fraction <clears throat> uh, sure. of, of the amount of money. Um, but, but, but you can, I think we can even lower the bar from a, a participation standpoint, from a cost standpoint um, by doing initiatives like that. I mean, I think either way, uh, I think there's a tremendous opportunity. Quick, quick follow-up question as it relates to those 100, roughly 100 mountain goats each year. Those people mm -hmm. that, those people that have done six of the eight uh, mountain races in the circuit uh, that are uh, awarded a Mount Washington Lottery bypass. Uh, just rough numbers, Dave. Uh, percent of men versus women in that 100 mountain goats each year. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's probably 70, 30. Yeah, okay, something right. like so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly Maybe what we're higher. seeing. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. exactly what we're seeing in the, in the, in the mountain circuit. I, um, I wouldn't mind seeing some of the races play up the, uh, the team aspect, you know, not just like a trail sisters thing, but um, there was a time where uh, we really played up team competition and that's, that's kind of gone by the wayside again. That's a good and point. I think that is so important. Um, you start playing that up and, and saying, hey, you need five five people to score, and that gets you people talking and saying, okay, uh, there's four of us entered. You know, let's get a couple more uh, of our teammates to run this. And mm -hmm. and typically, word of mouth is is how this uh, expands. Yeah, it's that's a really good point because um, uh, I, I I have always felt uh, at the U.S. Mountain Running Championships that I've been involved with that the um, that the team part, uh, the, the team part of the award ceremony, uh, for me as a race director is, is the most rewarding because there will be people recognized as part of a top three team that, uh, aren't going to finish on the overall podium, but you know, with your experience with cross country running, uh, you know, X number of people on your team score, whether it's three deep score or five deep score, that fourth or fifth person that isn't going to finish on the overall podium. However, their performance, whatever it happens to be, becomes an integral component to the team's overall success. Exactly. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's a brilliant, I think that's a brilliant point. And, and it is a big deal at U.S. Mountain Running Championships, the team sure. element. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good point. I think we need to, we need to do a better job of it. And it's not hard to do clearly. Sure. We ask people to to designate their team. Um, you know, you uh, you 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 score the, the the mountain circuit. 
it's not hard for you, I would imagine, to score not the team. Not at all. A component of, of yep. a mountain race. If you know, if you know the the participant and you know their team, that's really easy to come up with that. Again, I know we do it at U.S. Mountain Running Championships. We should be doing it um, at the at the New England Mountain Running Championships, which, by the way, will be at our Cranmore Mountain Race this fall. We're hosting the New England Mountain Running Championships. Paul and I, I'm, I'm making a note to myself. We need to do that. Um, <laughs> yep. And going forward, I think I think we need to do that as yeah. well because. It's not just men's teams that are recognized. It's women's teams as well. Um, uh, and and follow up to that. Um, do you think that, well, regional running clubs, are they dying off, Dave? Are they, are they just as strong and solid as they've been before? Uh, I mean, is there any, is there any correlation between, the team aspect of mountain and trail running declining or falling off the map and the decline of the, of the regional running club. Uh, I think uh, the regional running clubs are, are strong. Um, I, I do a fair amount of cross country racing and there's, there's an element there for sure. Uh, the USATF grand prix, which is a series of road races. Uh, the club aspect is huge in these events. Um, the teams may have gotten a little bit older, but not in the way that, um, that it has happened in the, in the mountain series. Uh, there's definitely recruiting going on, bringing, bringing younger people in. Um, I think in general, the clubs are out there and they're alive and well. Well, I, I, I again, I, I think that's, um, I think that's certainly an, an area of opportunity, um, uh, that that would not only not only that, that would certainly change the demographics, uh, help sure. to change the demographics. Um, Dave, let me ask about um, let me ask about the the elite athlete at these regional uh, mountain races um, and prize money, um, because we you know this this fall, uh, Paul and I, thanks to Northeast Delta Dental, um, we are increasing our uh, prize money uh, podium prize money. Uh, $300 for first place, $250 for second place, $200 for, for third place uh, overall men's and women's podiums. We'll also have a master's uh, uh, podium or a master's overall uh, uh, monetary prize as well. Um, Dave, from in your experience as both an elite athlete uh, and a race director, how important is it to attract uh, elite athletes to a typical mountain circuit race. I'm not talking about Mount Washington or, or loon. If it's the U S championship, I'm talking about a run of the mill Cranmore mountain race or Waterville, Waterville Valley mountain race. How, how important is it in your, uh, in your experience and estimation uh, to attract an elite field? Um, well, for, for a championship race or just for a regular race, just an everyday or just an everyday <laughs> ordinary race. Start with that. Um, is it important to, to get the elites? Um, I don't know that it's particularly important. Um, you know, the races are for the masses. Um, and if the, if the elite runners want to come out, that's, that's great. Um, I don't need, I don't know that it's, uh, it's necessary to, to bend over backwards to, to attract for that. Now, as far as, a, a new England championship, that, you know, it'd be great if you could get the best, you know, mountain runners in New England to come out for, 
for a New England championship. I'm just not sure what um, what would entice uh, an elite mountain runner to come out for a New England championship. Uh, hopefully the fact that it's a New England championship and being able to say, um, you know, I competed at the New England championships is enough to attract someone like that. Uh, certainly a little bit of prize money doesn't help. Uh, it does help, excuse me, mm. uh, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, having having that uh, that incentive to uh, to to come and race, mm. um, you know, as 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 we had this discussion about elite athletes and, and regional mountain races, if we uh, if we sort of take the next step and we 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 think about elite regional athletes competing on the national stage, I want to get your thoughts about that. Um, I, I had the the, the great opportunity um, to. Uh, uh, to host a, a U.S. mountain running championship, several U.S. mountain running championships. And um, those U.S. mountain running championships, by and large, with the exception of, of Casey Enman, you know, a handful of times uh, winning on the on the women's side, um, those U.S. mountain running championships uh, are dominated by left coasters, uh, people west of the Mississippi. By and large, and now that's my recent experience. Now you may tell me that 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 has changed, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be interested to hear that maybe that has evolved. Maybe initially it was New Englanders that were winning U.S. championships, but more recently, um, it, again, it's just my observation. I don't know the numbers, but my my observation is lately, um, uh, recently, uh, left coasters have have dominated the U.S. mountain running championships. What I'm what I'm curious about is. Uh, I'd like to see that change, whether that's go back to the way it was <laughs> and see, you know, East coasters, you know, uh, start to dominate uh, again, the U S mountain running championships as a, as a new England mountain race uh, director. Um, part of, part of the motivation to bring in elite athletes in my, for me is not, is not to, it's not that those elite athletes are going to drive participation. Cause I agree with you. I don't really think it matters for the masses. Um, who is at a typical Cranmore mountain race and winning? I don't think the people care. Um, and that's not to discount those athletes. I'm just saying that, that that's not what gets people to the race. Right. Um, however, um, there's a lot of talent here in new England, um, on the roads, uh, and on the track and, you know, what responsibility do I have or what impact, what role can I play as a mountain race director to get that Dan Kurtz to come off the track or off the roads and start to dabble in mountain racing? And who knows, maybe the guy catches fire and wins a U.S. mountain running championship. Dave, what's your what's your take on um, on New England mountain runners and their standing in U.S. mountain running overall? Yeah, uh, I'm as a uh, nearly 60 year old runner, uh, I don't really follow all that much what's going on, um, you know, in the in the open category anymore or even in the masters category. And people tend to to just look at the people uh, in their own age group. Um, as far as uh, getting elite runners to uh, to participate in mountain running, the um, I guess the key is is to get that get them to transition. You know, um, uh, convince them a, a good cross country runner. 
you know, that this is the next, uh, next step that, um, you know, if you're good at cross country, I think you'd really be good if you came and, and gave uh, Cranmore a shot, you know, and then, and see where it goes from there. Um, back in the, in the olden days when New England was, you know, hotbed for, uh, for mountain running and uh, most of the mountain running team came from New England. Um, a lot of that had to do with um, how much uh, interest there was from elite or elite roadrunners that um, they didn't even think about um, that it was like a crossover. It's like, well, you know, if this season we do uh, track, this season we do some road stuff. In the fall, we do cross country. Oh, in the spring, we're you know we're a mountain running team. And um, uh, as a uh, as a promoter, uh, a, a race promoter, a race director, and um, back then I was also this is the early two thousands. I was also um, in charge of the racing team at the central mass striders. So, um, the, the things I was interested in, I was recruiting people who might be interested in doing this kind of thing too. So I was bringing in good road runners who were, um, interested or at least curious about mountain running snowshoe racing, which are very similar, um, similar events. Uh, maybe they don't sound similar, but, um, the type of runner who's good at mountain running is also going to be generally good at snowshoe racing. They're a good grindy kind of runner. Um, you know, how, how we change that, how we get the elite runners um, to come out for mountain running. That's, that's a, a very good question. I don't know what motivates um, the elite runner now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, well, they're, yep. Yeah, well, what I was going to say is, uh, first of all, I, I shouldn't characterize it as these U.S. mountain running teams are just uh, West Coast mountain runners. Right, right. Every year there are New Englanders that make the sure. team. I'm, I'm just, I'm talking about national champions in yep. general. Um, but for sure, New Englanders uh, have have had uh, have had excellent representation on these on these U.S. teams. Um, I, you know, I, you you tell me, Dave. Um, how much of a motivator might it be for um, for a top level road or or track athlete here in New England that is maybe just on the tier below being elite enough to make a U.S. team um, as a you know on the road or our U.S. team on the track? How much of a motivator would it be to be able to represent your country in a different sport? In other words. You're just below. You're just below qualifying. You know, being a, 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 a an Olympic marathon qualifier. You're not just. You're quite not not quite there. Or even on the track, not quite there. Like elite, but you know, there's a there's a lot of people that are just below that exactly. threshold. But <laughs> those elite athletes that are that are representing the U.S. on the roads and the track, <laughs> they're not dabbling in mountain running. Like that. That's right. that's completely. That's completely up for the taking how how much of a motivator is it for for that type of athlete to be able to represent their country for the right person that's a huge motivator uh mm -hmm. definitely you know saying hey um you're gonna you're gonna wear uh the official u.s uniform you're gonna get a trip to 
wherever to somewhere in Europe to represent your country at the highest level in, I wouldn't call it a different sport. I'd call it a different discipline of your, your chosen sport. And um, yeah, I think that's a great motivator for people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to tell you this, this is kind of a little off, off the, um, off the track here, but <clears throat> back when I, um, I qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon in 1992 and um, they had uh, some information that you had to send in with that. And they asked if you were interested in being contacted about orienteering. And I had heard of orienteering, but I didn't really know what it was about. And I'm like, sure, um, I'm interested in, in hearing about this. So they had a program back in 92 to recruit uh, people who had qualified for the Olympic trials to see if they, um, they actually paired them up. I paired up with a, um, a regional class orienteer who taught me orienteering. And the idea was to get a bunch of these good runners to try out orienteering and maybe find uh, a gem in the rough there that, um, that could be uh, move up to the next level in orienteering. So maybe something like that um, in mountain running where you um, get the, uh, the mailing list of all the people in, uh, in the Olympic trials and say, hey, um, we'd love you to come to uh, the uh, national championships for mountain running and, and see how you do in something like this and perhaps make the U.S. mountain running team. Yeah, I think it's such it's such a great point that um, I I I'm not sure that we're doing a great job from a <laughs> developmental standpoint. I think I think I think generally speaking, uh, other countries, particularly European countries, do mm -hmm. a much better job developmentally finding those diamonds in the rough right. and steering them toward a discipline of the sport that maybe an athlete might not have ever considered. I mean, I think sure. that's a, that's a great example. Jeez. I'm so glad you brought up orienteering. I totally forgot about that. That whole, <laughs> that whole part of it. Um, <laughs> fascinating. Um, Dave, I, I, I want to, I want to finish with this. Uh, you, uh, when I asked you for, for a bio, of course your, your, your bio is a, is a page and a half long. It's, <laughs> It is. It is extraordinary. It, it, it's obviously a, ref, a reflection of a uh, of an incredibly long and and successful career and running. One, by the way, uh, by, by the way, which is not over, uh, uh, but, I hope. but, <laughs> no, but certainly very storied. Um, uh, and 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 what I appreciate is the the first section of your of, of your bio is uh, you label trivia. So I want to I want to <laughs> just I want to go through a couple of these things with the time sure. that I have left with you because I there's a there's a, there's a, there's a there's a I think some interesting nuggets in here. Uh, some of which I knew about, some of which uh, I, I didn't know about. Let me okay. let me let me let me start with this. Um, you uh, you say in your in your trivia um, that you've run over one hundred and fifty seven thousand miles. Now, yep. uh, you, you're a numbers guy. You've you've said that, and and you know if I gave you a few minutes, you could probably tell me what the exact number is. But let's just stick with with over one hundred and fifty seven thousand mi lifetime miles. That's fine. People can appreciate that. Um, you also noted uh, in your trivia that that you've been injured over 700 times. Now, yeah. my question, Dave, is: is there any correlation 
between 157,000 lifetime miles and uh, 700 injuries? I think I'm, I'm somewhat injury prone. So, um, you know, it may not be, uh, be the right sport for someone like me, but, um, <laughs> I'll be damned if I'm going to give up now. <clears throat> so, uh, a lot of those were, you know, minor injuries, uh, um, ankle sprains, a lot of ankle sprains back in the day. Um, it, it does seem as, as I've gotten older, that uh, it obviously takes longer to heal. Um, you know, I'll have one injury a year, but it takes me, you know, a month or two months to get over that injury. So, um, yeah, it's been a long, uh, a lot of uh, injuries. Yeah. Do you do you think the thing that made you the most successful athletically um, also may have made you the most vulnerable to injury? You know, that's, that's certainly a possibility that, um, yeah, I don't like dialing it back. I'd, I'd rather run through anything I think I can run through. Um, I, I air tend to err to the side of, um, not of caution, uh, that, oh, you know, I can, I can get through this. I can make it through this. Um, I do recall a couple of years ago, I went and, um, saw a doctor about whatever injury I was currently uh, dealing with. And his advice to me was to let pain be my guide. And I just looked at him and said, well, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Dave, now the, 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 the nearly 60-year-old version of yourself, um, if you had the opportunity to spend an hour with the 19 year old version of Dave Dunham. Um, what, what would this, what would the nearly 60 year old version of Dave Dunham share with the 19 year old version of Dave Dunham, <laughs> having the wisdom of decades of, uh, of experience in, again, including, you know, this, this, uh, uh, this not tendency or, or predisposition, but, but having had worked through, um, all of the physical things, injury things that you've worked through, wh what would you share with the 19 year old version of, of yourself? Uh, I don't know that I've actually learned anything in the, <laughs> in the last okay. uh, 50 years of running. Um, you know, maybe uh, I've been very good about, about cross training um, when I'm injured, but not, not so much. So, uh, you know, I'm not all that interested in anything other than running. Um so maybe, maybe try and convince my younger self that, you know, you're in it for the long haul and, uh, you know, maybe incorporate some more biking into it. You know, when you're, when you're feeling good, um, maybe not go those extra couple of miles because you're feeling good on that day. Um, you know, it's, it's tough. I don't know that I'd, I'd really want to change much of anything. You That's know, I've good. had, a, I've had a lot of fun along the way and, and maybe remind myself that, you know, you want to have, you want to have that fun. That's a good point. Um, yeah, for, for sure. And this, this, this leads me to my next, my next, my next point about your trivia, your running has certainly taken you to a lot of places um, that if you were not a runner, that's likely you would never have experienced, right? Um, both, both, both internationally, um, you've, uh, uh, you've run in 18 countries, um, and you've run in all 50 states. Um, so, 
so running has afforded you experiences that uh, if you were a non-runner, right, it's arguable that you, you, you likely would not have experienced those places. That's safe to say. Exactly. Um, you, um, what did I, yeah, I, so, so you've run or hiked to the highest point in 46 states. Yeah. Dave, which, which, which four states haven't you high pointed? Uh, so Alaska, which I have no plans on doing. Denali. Denali. Yeah. yeah. Um, Montana, which is a really, really long, difficult hike. Wyoming, which is also a very technical um, hike. And uh, Rainier, which is uh, Washington. Oh, okay. All right. Um so I've done the easy ones. <laughs> uh, well, uh, California, that's a, that's a, Whitney. No, it's, it's a hike. Interesting. It's a long hike, but it's, it's not, um, it's not tech, no technical. Okay. Um, so, so follow up to that. Um, uh, and again, I, not, not the actual number, cause you probably don't have the numbers in front of you, but, um, uh, state with the lowest high point, one of the plain states like Nebraska, uh, lowest high point would be Florida. <laughs> and I've done that. I've done that like, uh, like 40 times. They have, um, it's this, uh, this park that has like a, a quarter mile loop in it. And so we ran the loop, like, you know, to get in a 10 mile run, we just kept doing the loop over and over again. So those are all ascents of the, uh, of the highest point in Florida. <laughs> and, uh, would, would Whitney be the highest, uh, the highest high point in the, the highest high point I've done in the U.S. Yes, I've, I've uh, climbed Kilimanjaro. Yes, but yes, uh, in 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 Africa, but but right. highest high point in the U.S. Whitney. Right, Whitney. Right. Yep, fourteen something. Four. Yep, fourteen something. Um, you mentioned you mentioned we. Um, is there is there someone who has uh, accompanied you on um, on many of these high points? I know. Yeah, many is. many of the high pointing adventures have been with uh, Eric Morse. He's uh, also a a highly elite runner from, uh, from Vermont. Um, never won Mount Washington, but has, uh, was close a few times, uh, uh, on the mountain running team a number of times. Um, just a heck of a, heck of a runner, a great teammate, uh, a great friend. We've traveled, uh, all over the country, uh, adventures like this. Um, you, um, you mentioned orienteering. Um, did you ever need to use any of those orienteering skills to find a state high point or are they all pretty obvious and easily accessed? Uh, there, there've been nothing like that. No, no, um, not for state high points, but, um, I've also done, you know, a, a bunch of County high points as well. So there is some, uh, some map and compass involved in that. And, uh, I did, I did some high level orienteering meets back in the day, uh, some 24 hour orienteering. Um, so I have, I have used that skill, not so much so, uh, in recent years. <laughs> okay. Um, you're also the first person to, uh, to have run in every town city in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Right. Uh, Dave, uh, approximately how long did that project take you? Well, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't that kind of a project when I first started. I'm kind of a collector, so I like I like collecting stats, um, like the peak bagging stuff. 
and I decided to start town bagging in uh, Massachusetts, which is where I lived. And that when I when I sat down and started planning it out, it ended up taking me a couple of years to do that. So it's 360 something towns in Massachusetts and it being my game, it's my rules. So my rule was um, it has to be a three mile run minimum of three miles, but I only have to step foot in that in any city or town during that three mile run. So it's a lot of planning things out where I'm at the border where two towns meet or three towns meet. And then it was a lot of um, four or five runs in a day. So I might run 15 miles and in a bunch of different towns, but I'd move from town to town to town um, amassing that. And then once I finished Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire seemed like an interesting goal. And uh, I finished... <laughs> New Hampshire. And I said, you know, Vermont's looking pretty good too. <laughs> and uh, it's just a wonderful way to get out there and uh, visit places you might not necessarily visit. I'm really into fire towers, seeing fire towers, uh, rail trails. I love rail trails. Uh, so I'm getting out there and seeing things that I might not, not necessarily see and, um, you know, checking off a list while I'm going along. Mm. Um, of course, um, all of the places that, that, that I just described, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut, um, uh, have their fair share of, uh, I'm not even sure what's, what's, uh, 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 what, uh, what's less than a town or city, uh, mm. uh, right. In uh, other words, this, there are gores and, uh, I'm trying to think of what else there is, uh, um, there are places, gores, townships. Yes. There are but, different but, levels of unincorporated towns. Yes. But you but you set a threshold for or yeah. where did this list, I guess, where did this list come from? Uh, yeah. So I picked whatever whatever was available um, like online. There, there are actually a number of clubs that exist for people to visit each city and town um this like connecticut 251 is a club and the vermont whatever the number is in vermont there's an actual club that exists and they have the um the list of what's an official uh place to visit yeah and um of course like the new hampshire 48 4000 footers which by the way have you done the new hampshire 48 4000 footers i'm stuck about halfway through that list Interesting. I got, it's on my list of lists wait a minute 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 the, the the guy who loves lists and and who and who is a legendary mountain runner hasn't dave what what's I know. the story it's a shame i i actually that was kind of one of the things that got me into like mountain lists I did the um, the loop, the PEMI loop. So um, that actually goes over, I think, 12, 10 or 12, 4,000 footers. Yeah. And if you and add spurs, I think you can get up to 14 of the. 4, yeah, 4, something like that. So I had done that and that kind of got me interested. And um, for whatever reason, when I'm I'm mean, so many of them are actual hikes. They're not they're not something I could run. Good point. And if I'm running, then typically I'm racing. So there's no free weekends. 
And if I'm injured, then I'm usually <laughs> really injured. Got so it. there's no hiking going on. So it. it's uh, it's been kind of stalled. Got okay, got it. Um, well, th there's a there's a good opportunity for you and I to get together to do a hike because I think I've got four left. So nice. uh, all right, I'll, I'll follow up on that. Which um, four? Um, isolation, Ooh, Owl's nice. Head, and oh, I love um, it. And the Tri Pyramids. Those are the oh, those are okay. the four that I that I have. I've left. done all those. Yeah. Well, though, Owl's Head is my favorite. Yeah, of course, at, you know, as, as a as someone who didn't do a whole lot of pre-planning, I sort of saved the most difficult ones for last right. like that, you know, what it, you know, that was not the way to do it. <laughs> but that's the way that I have done it. I think uh, my wife Karen has maybe 8 left. So wow. I'm I'm sort of waiting for her to get caught up so that we sure. can finish together and likely we will have to finish with one of obviously going to have to finish with one of the four I haven't done which yeah. are uh, not four that I'm looking forward to uh cuz <laughs> they're long and a grind. Yeah. Dave, you um you also say that you you ran twice in the same day. Now that's not terribly unusual. I know I know you run you run twice in the same day quite often, um, but you ran twice in the same day, more than twenty four hours apart. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, I love that that one that trivia one. Wow, the international dateline was my friend that day. So um, I was over in Japan doing a race. I got invited. Um, Back in the late 80s, I was the top American finisher at the Boston Marathon. And um, there's a race in Japan that is the sister city to the Boston Marathon. And they invite the top um, top New Englander to come over there and run their um, 30K race. So uh, I came over and did the race. And uh, before we flew back, I did a run there in Japan. And then it took more than 24 hours to actually get back home. And, uh, but it was the same day because of the, the crossing the international time timeline. And I'm like, well, I have to go for another runs. So for the rest of my life, I'll be able to say this. The only reason I did it, there wasn't any training benefit to it. Um, all right, let me, let me finish with this. And <clears throat> Perhaps, perhaps this is terribly unfair for me to finish with this last point of trivia, um, because while I think it's I think it's the most entertaining piece of of your trivia, um, it, it 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 clearly doesn't define uh, who you are as a runner. Again, I I know you as uh, as Dave Dunham, legendary mountain runner, uh, you know, inducted in the 2014 Mount Washington Road Race Hall of Fame. You wrote the book on Mount Washington. Um, uh, but I, but I think this is, this is probably the, this is probably your best trivia nugget. So I'm going to, I'll share it with the, with the world. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, there are some people that know about it. I know, I know about this and this is actually my, this is one of my favorite stories to tell about you. Um, but I don't really know the whole story. So this is going to be a good opportunity for me to actually hear the whole story. Dave, um, <clears throat> runner's world uh, once named you the fastest nude cross country runner. Um, yeah, please, please to tell how that became a thing. So um, this, there was a series, a couple, I, I'm really into series. I love, like I say, I love collecting things. I like um, uh, doing, doing different races, different race series. So there was a local series called the Hockamock Swamp Rat series. And um, it was a magazine. It's actually a New England magazine, very offbeat magazine, um, very unusual take. But um, 
but a lot of race results and things like that. So he had this series and it was a generally um, like the toughest races in New England kind of a series. And he had some crazy point scale um, and it was it was age and um, and gender uh, uh, modified. So so everybody was against everybody else. And he had bonus points if you ran a naked race. So um, I was actually doing really well in the series, but um, someone uh, in an older age group was actually ahead of me because he was doing better uh, in the age grading factors. So um, I decided that I would do one of the the naked, uh, there was a naked cross country race in, it was either North Carolina or South Carolina. So I actually paid to fly to South Carolina to, to do this, this nude cross country race. And it was the, the first time um, I had ever done anything like that. I had done a, um, like a naked, naked mile in, um, in Sears and all of all places while I was over in Europe. And it was one of those drunken night after the race uh, kind of deals. So um, not an official race, but anyway, um, I went down there and it was the craziest thing I had ever seen with all these naked people around. And it's, it's what you'd think of. Um, it's not, uh, not a bunch of uh, Playboy models or anything. This is your typical attendee to a, to a local, local race. And this actually it was a little more unusual in that it was a clothing optional um, location. So, um, it, you know, like a park or whatever they owned. So it was, um, it was a cross country race, but there were people who were clothed and people who weren't, which made it even a little <laughs> more kind of uncomfortable. So um, I actually, I remember going out um, with the leaders and it was, you know, a couple of locals who were, were clothed. And they just kept giving me the, you know, the weirdest look because I was this naked guy out there running. And, um, and it was definitely an unusual experience. And, um, you know, uh, I ended up running like 1530, right around five minute pace for, for 5k cross country. And somehow runner's world got word of it, maybe through Hawk Mox Marprat. And, um, they declared me like the fastest uh, <laughs> naked cross country runner, which is tell a dubious me, uh, distinction. Tell, tell me that there wasn't a photo spread that accompanied that, uh, that article. Yeah, nothing, nothing like that. And that maybe is the oddest thing about it is, is like milling around afterwards with people <laughs> still being naked. You know, the running part, okay, I, you know, you're out there, it's kind of natural and free, but, but like going to an award ceremony with a bunch of naked people, it was, it was something else. So I'm a bit of a closet nudist. Well, maybe not a closet nudist, but uh, I've been on the summit of um, of a bunch of different um, state high points uh, naked as well, just because I think it's kind of a, an interesting thing to do. Is that I, I presume that's a list that you also keep? I do have that. I have that list. Oh, my God. You got to keep it light sometimes, you know? <laughs> Oh, that's what I like about you, Dave. Um, <laughs> Dave, uh, 
appreciate that. Uh, and uh, I also appreciate you uh, sharing your story. Thanks. Thanks so My much pleasure. for joining me. Great stuff. Dave's High Points and Towns Projects are a fascinating example of what inspires some people. Clearly, the spotlight is the brightest and the applause is the loudest when it's associated with success in organized events and races. But some people, I suspect Dave included, find an equal amount of satisfaction in accomplishing something far outside the public realm, but deeply personal in nature. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walkable podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my X and Threads account at Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half or Walk Double. So make sure to check it out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.